Welcome to Today on Broadway for Friday, July 27th, 2018. I'm Broadway World's Matt Tamanini. As we told you on yesterday's show, James is off seeing the off-Broadway production of Smokey Joe's Cafe. And that's probably a good thing, because I'm coming out swinging for the biggest name in theatrical journalism. James, I'm sorry. I'll leave my ID and parking pass on my desk. You have my forwarding address. Okay. So let's do this. As most of you know, last night the original Broadway production of the Go-Go's musical Head Over Heels officially opened. As we've discussed, to call its performance at the box office thus far during previews middling would be incredibly generous. However, for those that have seen it, the word of mouth has been incredibly positive. Most people acknowledge that it's a messy show that is far from theatrical perfection. But it is nonetheless an enjoyable, uplifting, and progressively historic show. Unfortunately, not too many critics felt the same. Now, normally we would start the review section with the New York Times since I'm recording after it has been released. But I'm going to reserve Ben Brantley's words for the end. Adam Feldman of Time Out New York probably gave the show its best review, awarding it four out of five stars, writing, quote, To enjoy Head Over Heels, which offers quite a lot to enjoy, it is probably best to kick up your heels and put your head on hold. That's not to say that this saucy, boisterous musical doesn't have a brainy side, starting with its ambitious crossbreeding of four time periods. At heart, the show is a campy romp. Broadway traditionalists may not approve, but that feels like part of the point. Head Over Heels is a fantasy and celebration of nonconformity, and it puts its casting where its mouth is with an ensemble that is diverse in race, gender, and size. Honoring the beat, which is part of the plot of the show, in this merry Arcadia, where it's set, means making room for different drummers. You hear that, Ben? David Cody, writing for The Village Voice, was also positive, writing, quote, Head Over Heels does go retro, but way retro, to achieve something rarer and wonderfully strange. They found the Venn overlap, you know, we love Venn diagrams here, they found the Venn overlap among We Got the Beat, LGBTQ Awakening, and Elizabethan Allegory on Humane Statecraft. As I'm reading these, I see Sarah Holdren tweeted that her review is up. I'm not going to get into it, but I'll just read you the first line of her tweet. She said, look, y'all know I'm going to love Head Over Heels. So apparently that's positive. Um, We'll get to some of the other ones that were not so positive. And keep in mind that these things that I'm going to read are probably some of the most generous pull quotes I could find from each article. Matt Winman of AM New York said, quote, um, no. Contrary to the affirmatively cheery chant of its opening number, Head Over Heels, a new jukebox musical on Broadway in which the hit songs of the all-female 1980s pop-punk band The Go-Go's are inserted into a ridiculous Elizabethan-era pastiche, has not got the beat. That probably got lost long ago in the development of this oddball property. Greg Evans of Deadline wrote, quote, For better or worse, Broadway's Head Over Heels is stuck with being known as the Go-Go's musical. Better because of the goodwill floating on stage with all those lighter-than-air hits by Belinda Carlisle, Jane Weedlin et al. Worse because the hard-working new production can't seem to keep itself from popping those effervescent tune bubbles one by one. Frank Sheck, Hollywood Reporter, If you have trouble imagining songs like Vacation and Cool Jerk fitting into a scenario depicting a royal family's romantic complications, you still will after seeing this relentlessly frothy musical for which the term check your brain at the door could have been invented. The farcical gender-fluid shenanigans are as campy as things get on Broadway. And that's saying something. So... We're seeing a little bit of a consensus there, and even though some of these people didn't like the show, 
they acknowledge that it's relaxed and feel good. Now we come to Ben Brantley from the New York Times, a publication which you'll likely remember has already been embroiled in a controversy surrounding an insensitive theater review this week. If you don't know what I mean, check out Tuesday's show. So, in writing about a show that is being championed for its diversity in both casting and characters, Brantley goes out of his way on multiple occasions to say things that are insensitive at best to transphobic at worst. Let's start with the subtle. In writing about Peppermint, he dismissively notes and undermines how historic her inclusion in this cast is, saying, quote, These assorted role reversals are overseen by the wise oracle Pythio. Peppermint, a contestant on RuPaul's Drag Race, described in the program as the first transgender woman to create a principal role on Broadway. Rather than just saying the first transgender woman to create a principal role on Broadway, Brantley feels the need to qualify that fact by framing it as just some throwaway thing that's said in the program. It gets worse. In describing the plot full of gender-fluid love matches, he writes, quote, Its dichotomous nature matches the didactic thrust of a show that celebrates the importance of not being, and then parenthetically, and pardon me for trotting out what's starting to feel like the decade's most overused word, binary. Really, Ben? I might have gone for fake news, but granted that's two words, but I can think of a few other words that might apply here. Douchebag, maybe? Finally, and the uh, thing that is drawing the most ire online currently, he purposely, purposely misgenders a trans character for a few, and I mean very few, kicks and giggles. He writes, quote, Demetus, the king's viceroy and father of Mopsa, finds himself strangely drawn to her. I mean them. Again, I say, really, Ben? There are likely other digs and insults that my privileged eyes didn't pick up on, but it shocks me how few Fs Brantley must give to make these jokes at a time when we're seeing news stories on a weekly, if not daily basis about trans people, often of color, murdered in this country because we as a society have been so slow to recognize them as the individuals that they are. And here we have the theater critic for the paper of record making flippant, ridiculous jokes at their expense. Now, I am by no means the expert on the fight for acceptance or visibility of trans people. I am still very much learning and most of the time feel super uncomfortable, well, just in general, but specifically discussing these topics because I know that there is so much that I don't know and I don't want to offend anybody with my ignorance. So for me, some nobody who works in the administrative side of a theater website and does a 15-minute podcast every day could be conscientious about not accidentally offending people who are actively struggling not to be murdered. You would think that the most important theater critic in the world, at the most important newspaper in the world, could be cognizant of his impact enough not to purposely offend and degrade people who are fighting not to be murdered on a daily basis. Is that asking too much? I really don't think it is. Now look, I, I don't know Ben Brantley, but there are a few patterns that have seemed to emerge in his reviews over the years that I think are incredibly troubling. Unfortunately, if history is any kind of indication, I do not expect arts editor Scott Heller or the New York Times to do anything about this or the Alicia Umphress situation from earlier in the week, but I sincerely hope they do. And when they do, I hope they decide to bring in some critics of the New York Times who don't look like me and James. But unfortunately, I think this is going to be another awful missed opportunity to reassert the importance of a New York Times theater review because of the insight into content 
not simply riding on the coattails of the name at the top of the masthead. I will add that yesterday Brantley also made Limpica, a musical having its out-of-town tryout in Williamstown, Massachusetts, a critic's pick. Starring Eden Espinoza and Carmen Cusack, the show is about a pair of early 20th century women who fall in love. Interestingly, he finds a way to be mostly respectful of that show instead of finding as many opportunities to insult it as possible. I wonder what the difference is. Anyway, okay, I'm going to need a palate cleanser after that, so let's talk about one of the things that brings me the most joy in the world, Funko Pop figures. What's that you say? If you're unfamiliar with what those are, they are these adorable, ridiculous little collectibles of pop culture figures and characters that are drawn and designed in a vaguely Japanese anime style. They're very popular uh, amongst nerds like me, and um, having already created a number of pops uh, based off Disney musical characters, as well as some from the Rocky Horror Picture Show in Greece, Funko is releasing a new set to commemorate the 1986 movie version of Little Shop of Horrors. There'll be a Seymour, Audrey, Orin, a pair of Audrey 2s. They'll be released in August, and you are darn tootin'. I will be getting these. I already have um, a healthy collection of 198 different full-size Funkos of either the pop, rock candy, or wacky wobbler variety, the vast majority of them being pops, not to mention dozens of mini pops as well. If you want to see pictures of my ridiculous collection that I'm, uh, you know, unusually proud of there'll be pictures on my twitter by the time this episode comes out i think so anyway talking about my funko collection made me feel a little better so uh thanks again for that funko (laughs) anyway okay back to actual theater news yesterday it was announced that andrew lloyd Webber's really useful theaters would officially change their names to lw theaters the name change is designed to end any confusion between the theaters that the right honorable the lord lloyd Webber owns and the really useful group which handles his creative output. None of the theater's names themselves will actually change. Next, I have to apologize. It snuck up on me, and I didn't remind you ahead of time, and I'm sorry for that. But last night, Disney's Newsies returned to the big screen via Fathom Events. I apologize for dropping the ball here, but it will be back in movie theaters on Saturday, so check fathomevents.com to see where and when it is playing near you. I saw it the first time, just like the third or fourth time that it's in movie theaters, but I saw it the first time that it was in theaters, and it is incredible to see that cast do that show in glorious Technicolor, breathtaking cinemascope, and stereophonic sound. And finally, yesterday, the Irish Repertory Theater announced that Tony-winning legend Bill Irwin will present On Beckett, which he conceived and performs exploring the writings of Nobel Prize winner Samuel Beckett. The show will run from September 26th through November 4th. Irwin, one of the greatest clowns, of course, played Vladimir in the 2009 Broadway revival of Waiting for Godot slash Godot. He will be joined in the production of On Beckett by Finn O'Sullivan. If you would like more information on any or all of these stories, please check out the show notes at broadwayradio.com. Okay, thanks for listening to Today on Broadway. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Matt. Hopefully, I did not irreparably damage my career with my soapbox rant at the top of the show. Natalie Nowak will be back in this feed with a very special episode tomorrow discussing the first of New York Times controversies this week. Then James and some assembly of theatrical Avengers will be here for this week on Broadway on Sunday. And then if James hasn't changed all the passwords and deleted my name from his phone book, I'll be back with him on Monday for Today on Broadway. Have a great weekend, and until next time, take care of yourself and each other. Hey.